Hey, welcome to Project A Plus. My name is um, Hugh. Your name is uh, it's Hunter. Hunter, that's right. I'm glad that you remembered. I knew it had the first two letters of my name, and then it sort of changed, but I, I couldn't quite figure it out. So thanks for coming in. All right, so should we talk about Solo, a Star Wars story? Yeah, I guess so. So Solo, uh, a movie in the what's it? The Star War? Is that what it's called? The Star War. Yeah. Which I am a huge fan of. Uh, are you a big fan of them? Of of all Star Wars films or this particular film? I guess just I guess just all Star. Like, what what do you think about Star Wars? Uh, well, I grew up as a Die Hard fan. Yeah, that's a different film franchise. Ah. So what's this? Die Hard is about a man who's in an airport, and you mean the terminal? No. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Solo, a Star Wars story. Star Wars. You're obsessed with Star Wars as a child, but you, uh, if I remember correctly, are not a big fan of the new Disney films. Not a huge fan. Uh, so that's because you're a little guy. Is that gonna make an appearance every episode? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, every time you say huge fan. I'm not gonna learn. I'm gonna keep saying it. So I, I was sort of pleasantly surprised by. Force Awakens. Uh, I did have some problems with it, but I was relatively pleased with the experience. I didn't love Last Jedi. Which I did love. And I hated Rogue One. I think, yeah, I, I basically the same. I also grew up with Speed, a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, and um, sort of had a wall uh, between the release of Revenge of the Sith. You, mean, and... you laughed out loud? No. L U L. Uh, I had a wall of interest between the film Revenge of the Sith and the film uh, The Force Awakens, but um, I thought The Force Awakens pretty much is exactly what I wanted from a Star Wars film. I really liked that film a lot. And then the last night I just continued to push it in a direction that I thought was uh, really great. And I, I, it's probably my favorite blockbuster film that's been released in several years. Uh, just, I thought it was pretty amazing. Um, and I, as with you, thought Rogue One was terrible. <laughs> I guess that brings us now to today, when the film we're going to talk about is Solo, a Star Wars story. This comes from the series of films they're calling Star Wars Anthology Films, which sits separate to the main saga that The Force Awakens and Last Jedi is in. It's the same canon, but it's uh, standalone stories. I don't know. I feel like to be like standalone stories would re- require them to have like plots that were directly linked to the other films or characters that weren't in. And I think they don't do a great job of uh, making these their own thing. Like they're too connected to the, the stuff that came before. So I'm excited for that uh, the new trilogy that Ryan Johnson's making because apparently that's like really disconnected from the rest of the the films. So this is part of that those anthology films, which is what Disney themselves have dubbed them. And it tells the story of Han Solo, the character from the original trilogy and this most recent trilogy. Now, similar to the previous uh, quote-unquote standalone film, Rogue One, it had somewhat of a troubled production history. And the original directors... Phil Ward and Chris Miller of the Lego movie and 21 Jump Street films. Anyway, so yes, they were unceremonious, uh, unceremoniously dumped off the film uh, midway through production. I guess they were finished. Uh, it was like eighty percent of the film was shot. I, I think it was about seventy-five percent. So they'd done all the pre-production and they'd done the majority of principal photography. And based on the regulations of the directors' guild, in order to retain directors' credit and have creative control through the post-production process you need to have shot 90%, I think, of principal photography, something like that. Oh, interesting. So that's why they probably... Which is what happened with Rogue One. 
Uh, so Gareth Edwards had shot the requisite amount specified by the Directors Guild to retain that control through the post-production process. And they had apparently a fraught relationship uh, between him and uh, Disney, or spearheaded by Kathleen Kennedy. And they wanted to avoid the same situation with this film because they'd already have trouble with Lord and Miller. So they jumped in before they got to that 90% of principal photography, which means that when Ron Howard took over, he gets sole director's credit, Lord and Miller get reduced to executive producer credit, and he gets control of post-production. In fairness, what I've read is like 80% of the film is like Ron Howard, stuff that Ron Howard shot. Yeah, he reshot a lot of the film. There was even actors who had to be recast because they weren't available for the reshoot. But I mean, even if he did nothing but finish the final 30%, he still would have had to have had sole director's credit as per the director's guild. Oh, interesting. Okay. So anyway, that's the, the backstory of it. I think with Rogue One, whether you knew that or not going in, when you discover all of its kind of production problems, it makes sense. Like you could see that in the final product. Now, now this one, like because we know the backstory already and we know like Phil Lord and Christopher Miller's sensibilities, we can perhaps see traces of that. But I don't think the overall product is necessarily something that you would say is a mess. No, it's definitely more cohesive than Rogue One is. Sure, we can imagine a different film um, that Phil Lord and Christopher Miller might have produced. Yeah, I wonder what their version... I wonder if it had been better or worse. I just can't... I, I, don't, I don't know. I really don't. I mean, I don't know. Like, so you, you always want to be like, oh, Disney's in the wrong here because obviously they're evil. But like, I mean, apparently the act, like, some of the actors didn't like working with them, especially either. So it, it doesn't seem like it was necessarily just like corporate bureaucracy that got them kicked off, you know? And so maybe it was for the best, but I don't know. And I, you know what, honestly, I really, really enjoyed Solo A Star Story. So there you go. So before we get too far into our appraisal of the film, we should just give a quick rundown of its general story. It's about a, a, the obscure character, Han Solo. <laughs> the premise is that he is from this planet called Corellia, which builds ships. He's part of some criminal collective, which was kind of like Oliver Twist or something. He manages to escape with his friend slash girlfriend played by Amelia Clark and uh, they wind up getting separated before they can escape the planet and uh, Han Solo ends up enlisting into the Imperial Army um, looking to be a pilot so he can return to Corellia and then he gets entangled in Woody Harrelson's gang of smugglers and it kind of escalates from there so that's the general the general story it's time. that's the gist and maybe characters will return maybe you'll have some cameos by some other star wars favorites <clears throat> maybe a giant monster man will get involved somehow who's to say we will be spoiling uh, elements of this film if that is of any concern to you so what did you think of solo uh, that we've uh, adequately set it up you know what the best thing about star wars is as distinct from star trek and other sci-fi franchises and even comic book stuff there has never been alternate timeline business. Yeah, I agree with you. It's all like one sort of uh, reality. I mean, I mean, they then created an alternate timeline when they excised the expanded universe. <laughs> so, uh, Solo, you, render your opinion. Render unto Caesar. I've been uh, keeping you on tenterhooks. You've been keeping you probably. <laughs> ah, I want to know. Yeah, I've been so excited to learn what you think about this movie. <laughs> Which I assume you, that you didn't like. Okay, so but this is the way I'll explain my reaction to the film. Okay, so I watched the film. 
I, I, I sat through the 135 minutes in the cinema plus ads, which I paid for. Again, I, I realized I didn't have to because no one checked my ticket. But anyway, so I left the theater and I'm walking home to this theater. As you know, we've talked about my uh, economic decisions in the past. <laughs> yes, we have. And I went to the theater within walking distance even though the ticket price is more expensive than some other cinemas, because I wouldn't have to pay for public transport. Yes. We, you, went, you went into very uh, extensive detail last, in the last episode. That's right. That's right. But uh, in case you didn't hear that last episode, you'll be glad that I just gave you a, a quick summary then. Uh, so I was walking home after this film, right? How long is a walk, how long is of a walk is it? So about 15, 15 minutes. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. So I'm wearing uh, the jacket that you'd be familiar with. Mm, yes, your famous jacket. Which is becoming increasingly faded, right? Oh, no. So anyway, so I'm wearing that jacket. I'm wearing, a, obviously, a grey t-shirt underneath that. And uh, wearing what would be called skinny black jeans of some description. Your standard look. And my pointy-toed fake suede black shoes. Because they're, they're vegan, right? Uh, yeah, of course. Such a fucking hipster. And uh, I was conscious of this particular look I had cultivated. And in my right jacket pocket... <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean, not right jacket. I don't have like a left jacket and a right jacket. On the right-hand side of my jacket... My God. In the pocket, I have my notebook, my Japanese notebook and pen. What, what, what brand? Uh, the brand is MD Paper, which is a really good notebook. And they're quite cheap. They're cheaper than like those molds, moleskin ones. Yeah, I use I use Muji notebooks. So hopefully we'll be we'll be sponsored by both of those companies at some point in the future. So anyway, I have that like there, and it's kind of it kind of sits because it's a jacket pocket near where like your jeans pocket would be. Like it's just slightly above. Oh it. Jesus fucking Christ! And I found myself uh, breaking into something of a smirk. And feeling my notebook as if it were a blaster in my <laughs> right pocket. Which is not an easy thing for a 32-year-old adult man to admit <laughs> while he's walking home from seeing the latest Star Wars film. <laughs> which is to say, I actually enjoyed this. <laughs> yeah, wasn't it good? I, I enjoyed it. Like That was a convoluted way to get to that. Probably next to The Force Awakens, it's the most nostalgic of this latest batch of Star Wars films. For sure. So we know that uh, Last Jedi kind of is pushing in a different direction a little bit. Rogue One is definitely telling a retro story, but it tried to do it like, hey, Star Wars is a war movie now. You know, It, it was trying for a different thing. It didn't come off, obviously. Um, so yeah, so this is more explicitly nostalgic. Uh, like The Force Awakens consciously was like, forget the prequels. This mirrors a new hope and this is a new beginning. Mostly what this is going for is an expansion of those hints of this underworld that we got in A New Hope in particular in the cantina. Yes, which are probably the one of the more enjoyable strands of A New Hope. The key to the original trilogy's success is a particular type of world building in which instead of showing a future sci-fi world, even though it's set in the past, but some sort of scientific future sci-fi thing instead of um, leaning heavily on the gleaming newness of it all they realize that that's not how we live currently so there's this whole texture of gritty lived in metallic 
cloaks and all that sort of stuff that they really capture well in those early cantina scenes in A New Hope. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's because they were mostly like reusing antiquated like Nazi kinds and stuff like that. But it's still a conscious choice to say, well, not everything's going to be gleaming in like Logan's Run. Like not everything's going to be like that. Or Star Trek. Or Star Trek. And that that is really effective for world building because it gives you a sense of history that they don't have to like explore. It lets your imagination run away with it. it it's, it's just enough that it implies like a past um, that you can build onto very easily. I and mean, that's why Star Wars is such a popular thing with like children, I think. Because it allows such an expansion of your own uh, ideas. And actually, I think this is something that the prequels do well too, but... Regardless, we don't have to talk about this. <laughs> Except for when we do our prequel episode. And I th- actually think this film effectively gets close to capturing that aesthetic in some of its scenes. I especially appreciate, even though this is like a hugely nostalgic thing to do and, and it's not forward thinking and it's not pushing the franchise in any new directions, but I did actually enjoy the fact that they really leaned heavily on the cloak and robot mask thing. Oh, I did too. <laughs> like the hooded cloak figure with a, with a weird robot mask that's just played by a human, it's not CGI. They go all out on that in this film and I really enjoyed that. Like that's, that spoke to what I appreciated about the original films. Even while I can concede that that's just an, a nostalgic exercise to some degree. But so, I mean, I feel like the appeal of these movies in general is pretty nostalgic. Like, Yeah, I mean, it, by by design, they have to be. But like, all of our blockbusters these days are nostalgia movies. Yeah, I mean, the audience for these films is like people my age with disposable incomes who still have a fondness for these bits of culture from the past being presented anew. Not me, too young. But one day they'll represent the prequels to you, I guess. But... The problem is that my uh, that the, the nostalgia engine was already alive when I was a child. So the things that I have nostalgia for are like, nostalgia objects themselves. So that when I'm your age and the entertainment industry tries to cultivate the audience of me, what they'll be making is nostalgic objects that are themselves nostalgic for nostalgia. So you see this into us like cycle <laughs> fucking garbage <laughs> so uh i'm glad that you enjoyed it i'm actually i'm pretty surprised because you're not looking forward to watching this movie at all no not really um i mean i mean i was probably looking forward to it more than deadpool 2 let's not talk about deadpool 2 i could conceive of like it, it being kind of enjoyable maybe if i just got into it but yeah i wasn't hugely looking forward to it because i think the feeling i had when i saw um did Rogue One come out before Last Jedi? I can't actually remember. Yeah, it did. It came out in 2016, I think. So Rogue One was obviously a terrible experience. And then I saw Last Jedi, and uh, I think that has some good elements, but overall it kind of exhausted me, honestly. And it made me fatigued for the franchise. Maybe you're just an old man. <laughs> Which means that, you know, when they announced something like Solo and all its production problems and all that sort of stuff, I was like, oh, another one of these. But it is actually an enjoyable film. And it's pretty, it's interestingly... um. I don't know, like, it, it works on as, like, a standalone film fairly well, I think. It actually has some interesting thematic things that no one's really giving it much credit for, which I do want to, want to get into. But what I was saying about the production design, I appreciated the callbacks to the original film in the production design. I think there's some lovely production design work in this film. And there's also some... It, it's got a very uh, tactile sense to it, I think. It does, it does. It has some inspired scenes that don't necessarily call back to the original, but are just kind of interestingly visual things on their own, like, like the, the train famous realisation of the the train sequence and also the Kessel planet. Oh, that, that part's great. Probably my favourite single moment in any Star Wars, any of the new Star Wars films, actually. There's a, there's a after the robot uprising bit, right? 
there's a scene where they show a Glock droid, like the battery droid, like walking on a keyboard. <laughs> that's my favorite thing. That's my favorite thing in the universe. <laughs> I used to watch that over and over. They, they, they could just make a movie that's just that shot for 20, 120 <laughs> minutes, and I'd be so happy for it. So there you go. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, the point is, it's not just that kind of retrograde production design they do have a few of their own ideas that they bring to it yeah i agree i agree and i feel like the alien designs of this were much better than the recent films too like the uh i like the gross alien woman i like the weird uh monkey man who's like their pilot initially it actually wasn't too much that now that i think about that i i really disliked about this film some of the characters are a little thin but that's the hollywood diet but yeah but that's kind of the type of movie that it is too you know so as i said i appreciated the kind of visual callbacks to the aesthetic of some of the original trilogy scenes the explicit dialogue callbacks were appalling <laughs> i think it must be said i mean the scene in which it, we finally get the answer to the question how han solo got his surname qualifies as probably the nadir of the franchise <laughs> that scene was great what are you talking about <laughs> that was so stupid i agree with you actually i was kind of like um i was setting i was set up to dislike this film right i think based on the production stuff and the that sequence in particular which i thought was like uh all right but it was a little too much like this is ah, ah, it's han solo ah, you know <laughs> he's doing the things that han solo does uh, but i think it really improved after they after he got off uh what do you call it uh corelia corelia yeah oddly enough in the reviews that i've read so far almost everyone has said it starts slow and then gets better um, I actually kind of enjoyed the early scenes more than the middle. There was like a, a chunk of the middle that kind of sags a little bit and then it picks up. Um, I, I liked some of the the scenes on Corellia because I liked how dark they were <laughs> shot. And I like sort of the juxtaposition between like the really dark like underworld versus like the uh, murky grayness of the, the surface of the planet. But in terms of like the action that I was having, I was kind of like, well, whatever. It's probably a little bit too condensed what they're trying to do on Corellia. Like, if this is where Han Solo came from, and he's in this weird, you know, Oliver Twistian setup where there's this weird slug leader um, sending all these people on these little criminal escapades or whatever it is. Yeah, could have used a couple more beats, I think. Maybe maybe just flesh that out a little bit more to show that he's really escaping from something. I mean, I do like that they're... they're... But on one hand, I do like that it's like pretty brief, just so you can get into the rest of the story. But it's a brisk film overall. It doesn't really, it doesn't drag. No. really, at any points. Although, as I said, the the middle is is probably less successful than some of the other sections. You want to talk some about the thematic bits that no one else had, no one's really pointing to. Yeah, I mean, I I won't like make any claims that what it's trying to do is like hugely deep with the character, or or because they're kind of constricted by. The fact that we know what happens to him and we know what he's like at the start of A New Hope when we first meet him. So what can you really do? But it, it's 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 kind of interesting that the overall arc of the film is really to reveal him as naive. But that's kind of like a part of the character in general, though, right? Even in the original films. He's like a little more um, world-weary, I guess, but, but he's still like sort of uh, simplistic in his like selfishness, I guess. And what I enjoyed was... The fact that there's this sort of generic setup in which he's separated from uh, Amelia Clark, and his narrative that he's worked up in his head is that he's going to become a um, imperial pilot and fly back and rescue her. The da- the damsel in distress, like that's the narrative that he's got got in his head. Yeah, and I think it quite su- successfully subverts that, and Amelia Clark actually refuses to be that part of the narrative. 
although not not necessarily for willful reasons necessarily, but because the world is more complicated than that. Maybe it does become willful at the end, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's like the world is more complicated than his little naive idea of saving a princess. Which he did, does do in the next movie, but whatever. But I mean, to an extent, like A New Hope has shades of subverting that. Like Princess Leia is not just a princess who gets rescued. She no, she's not Princess Peach. Much more than that. And I think that's that's kind of an interesting uh, way of approaching this character because I would have thought it would have just been the roguish smuggler guy who, I don't know, has 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 shades of, of goodness but is a bit more morally compromised. And I thought, I thought uh, Alden Ehrenreich did a great job of like playing that sort of balance too. It's obviously an impossible task to live up to Harrison Ford. But I think he did a pretty decent job. Yeah, I think I think he was... He was pretty solid in the film. That type of performance suited the material um, of this film. So, like, if, if it was more specifically like this is exactly the Han Solo that you saw in New Hope, probably wouldn't have worked so well. But the fact that that's kind of built into his character progression is that he is naive. And I like that he didn't try to just, like, do Harrison Ford. He's, like, reminiscent of him, but he doesn't, like, try to... He doesn't try to, like, do his voice or anything like that, which is, I, thought, I thought was good. <laughs> he sounded a bit terrible. <laughs> what do you think of uh, the other other characters what do you think about Chewbacca what do you think about Chewbacca's actor <laughs> what about what about uh old Donald Glover did you like did you like his Lando so like initially it was like maybe this is a bit too much of an impression of Billy D. Williams to be successful yeah I did get it I did get distracted because like it kind of like fades in and out yeah because some of it's like like uncannily good but as you get to see more of his performance you get more of a, a different thing from Donald Glover. And uh, I, I enjoyed that performance. It just, he didn't have that much to do in the film, I think is the main thing. And apparently they're maybe making a uh, spin-off. Hopefully they are. Because I think that's more fertile territory to explore. Yeah, I agree. I'd like to see him like rise to power, Cloud City. But the thing, the thing I liked about the Lando character, as opposed to necessarily what they do with Solo, is that almost everything about him in this is actually better than it was in uh, the original trilogy. Not to say I'm talking about Billy D. Williams' performance, but he actually looks better in this. He's got better facial hair. His costume is amazing. Yeah, he's got his he got a cape room. <laughs> Yellow and the capes uh, all look better than actually what uh, Billy D. Williams got to wear, which is more a bit more muted. So what I thought was a bit uh, underdeveloped was his relationship with the, the droid uh, played by Phoebe Waller Bridge. Some people have been really raving about her, and I was kind of just like, eh, she's like fine. I, I think we're at the point where. We're a bit oversaturated with quirky CGI droids in these films, or not necessarily always CGI. But I was, I was certainly cold on uh, Alan Tudyk's droid in Rogue One, which I thought was terrible. And this is kind of an extension of that. But this droid fucks you. I mean, she. I don't think she was in, as annoying as as the Rogue One one, which I found quite annoying. And she had some like fine lines, but I don't know. It's not. It's not the worst. I, I'm just sick of that kind of character in these films just don't really care that much about droid liberation to be honest <laughs> the the idea of like machine consciousness is such a it's a, it's so done to death in like science fiction at this point that it's like okay the fact that they obviously kill off uh the droid in this and there's supposed to be this scene of pathos with uh, lando mourning the death and then integrating her into the ship so she's always a part of it even in the original trilogy was the dodgy but i think that's not really earned because they probably share like two lines together in the film yeah <laughs> I mean, they talk like there's a scene where uh, she talks about their relationship and and alludes to 
uh, you know, a romantic or sexual side to it. But otherwise, it's not, it's not, it doesn't show us like they have this amazing bond that would make him devastated when she dies. She was involved in one of my favorite bits of the film, though, which is the like brief shots of robot boxy that we get on like this Fugler planet or whatever, where Clint Howard's the, uh, the like ring leader of it or whatever, <laughs> just like watching robots blow each other up. One other thing I wanted to touch on in terms of what I was talking about in terms of the progression of Solo's character that they go through here. So kind of by the end of the film, it gets to the point where he's obviously conscious of his naivety and that kind of explains why he develops this more cynical crust that we're familiar with. Um, So it's kind of a hard-earned cynicism uh, because of what happens with both Woody Harrelson and Amelia Clark's characters and him. So in some sense, it seems like a course correction because they very obviously have a scene in which he shoots first yeah, <laughs> to make up for the Greedo retconning that uh, Lucas did. But it's funny that there's a competing impulse because part of what they're doing is actually very much what Lucas was trying to do when he went back and changed that scene, which is to say that Han Solo is, was always good, right? That, the, that any superficial mannerisms of a weary smuggler were, were just an, a put on and that deep down he was always good. I think that's what Lucas was trying to do when he was saying he would never shoot first. He would always react. He's got some moral code. And this whole film seems to be that. The whole argument around that sequence is so stupid anyway. Because like in the original version, it's not like he's like walking up to him and just killing him. Like, Greedo's obviously going to like shoot him. Like, the, the controversy over that has always been so silly to me. It's funny that this film has that explicit kind of course correction yeah. side of it. And it has some sloppy and creaky callback slash call forwards like in which the leader of the rebellion asks him to join this fledgling rebellion which is obviously something to do with rebel alliance and he he rejects that but she goes well maybe one day in the future you will reconsider maybe like in whoever amount of time is between this and a new hope maybe you'll reconsider <laughs> maybe when you go to tatooine you join up with the java <laughs> but speaking of the leader of the rebellion uh did you enjoy having some positive ginger representation after Domino gleason <laughs> i did fucking finally <laughs> so they course corrected that to a large extent <laughs> that, was, that was some good stuff the character was that was cool i don't know she was well designed it looked like it was uh, uh i kind of liked i liked her in it yeah i thought she was good i hope they make a right like a comic or something about her now the biggest twist in this film is the sudden appearance of Darth Maul. <laughs> this is what I, I was talking to my friends about this, but do you think that thread will ever be followed up uh, now that Solo isn't making that much money? I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's so weird. Like it doesn't, <laughs> it's so bizarre. It doesn't work if there's no follow-up. You know what I mean? Like if this is the only film that they do of like Solo's backstory, it makes yeah. no sense. Well, but I, he could come across it. He could come up in a different, in a different film, right? Cause like they're talking about making an Obi-Wan movie, right? And like in the, in the cartoon, like, they, they fight a bunch or something like that. I don't, I don't know. I don't care. But, like, if they make an Obi-Wan film that is set, like, after this film, which it has to be because he has to have some sort of conclusion to his arc. Like, he has to die or something because we don't see him in New Hope, obviously. We don't? They should do a special edition where they edit Darth Maul into New Hope. They should, yeah. At the end of the third one when they added Hayden Christensen, they should just add Darth Maul <laughs> next to him as a hologram smiling. <laughs> You redeemed himself, <laughs> the devil man. <laughs> but what I what I mean is, so like, if so, obviously you have to have some follow up that occurs in the chronology after this film, right? To conclude that Darth Maul stuff. If it's in the um, Obi Wan film, Obi Wan will be too close to age to um, Alec Guinness, so it won't really work. 
I guess it, it, the film doesn't really do a great job of establishing how old Han Solo is. There's a kind of problem here because apparently it's set 11 years before uh, A New Hope. I, I read that somewhere, which makes no sense because they try and cover his entire backstory. They're like, everything has ever been mentioned, the Kesselron, whatever, how he met Lando. Everything is covered in this film. And it even ends on a note of saying, oh, now I'm going to go to Tatooine and work for Jabba the Hutt. So it definitely feels like maybe like a year before. So that's why it doesn't make sense to be like, I'm going to work for Jabba the Hutt for 11 years. (laughs) And that is kind of a problem. I guess it's kind of the nature of the beast, but it does make his backstory seem like two jobs that he does with Chewbacca. And that's his entire backstory with, with his character. Whereas in A New Hope, you're like, wow, what amazing adventures they would have had in the past. And... So the Darth Maul reveal, I enjoyed the fact that it calls back to the prequels and it stitches together these new films with the prequels, which I like. I like the fact that they, they should go together. They're not disavowing them like uh, like that, that scene in uh, The Force Awakens. Yeah, but, but for anyone who is not familiar with the uh, television like cartoon shows, it's very disarming to suddenly see Darth Maul <laughs> and distracting. It. It's so uh, random. Um, did you know anything about the fact that there was this backstory in which Darth Maul survives episode Yeah, one? I did know. I did know. I had read some of the, the stuff. I had no idea. So I was like, okay, this is weird. So I didn't even know it was Darth Maul. I was like, is this like his brother or something like that? <laughs> That's funny. I, I kind of, I, I actually don't like the fact that he survives though. Me either. It sounds stupid to me. Yeah, I agree with you. He should just die. Like, come on. He's supposed to be cutting in half. The, the official backstory is that he was so angry that he survived. Like, like he used his anger that he survived and he was just a torso. And he, go, he goes mad and lives on a planet with rats or something. And then his brother, like, saves him and gives him legs. I actually, people were like, oh, why'd they kill off Darth Maul so quickly? But I like that. I genuinely like that he's just this flash in the pan visual character and he's just, he just gets disposed of. Yeah, it's, it's great. Um, I like when he, get, especially like when he gets cut in half. Like, that's, that's great. So, okay. Do you have anything else you want to talk about so well? Again, I think we both liked it quite a bit. We both enjoyed it. Was there anything you didn't like about it aside, like, I've covered the callback. I mean, the, the callback stuff was so annoying. Like, that was the worst part of the film. Otherwise, otherwise there's nothing else you had any issues um, with. Yeah, I, I, I like that it was sort of like the plot was just sort of, um, I don't know, it was very, like, episodic. Yeah. I mean, it's surprisingly, like, I looked at the running time and my heart sank. I was like, does this really need to be another, you know, two hours and 20 minutes? Oh, yeah, really? No, but it, it's kind of, it pretty much zips by. It does, it does go by well. Like, it doesn't feel bloated. I thought the CGI was really well done. We've got to mention, actually, the, the trench warfare scene is quite well done. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. Better than the entirety of Rogue One. Yeah, it's, like, exactly what Rogue One kind of wanted to be, and it achieves it in, in a throwaway scene. But it has, like, a tactile sense that you don't often find in all of the Star Wars movies. What did, what did you think of the cinematography, which I praised earlier? I liked it, too. I liked, I liked the darkness of it. Yeah, I do. I, I agree. I think the guy who did, did the cinematography, he's like a really interesting cinematographer. Like he's shot a lot of really interesting films recently, like uh, Pariah. What do you think of Amelia Clark? I didn't. I was. I didn't like her. I thought her performance was like okay. I thought it was fine. Really like, I liked her. Yeah, it's like whatever. I liked the what they did with her character because she's not like she's not entirely evil because she does the, the no. wrong thing for her. But like yeah, her her um the things that she does are like that are uh, morally ambiguous are like totally justified you know you don't ever feel um like she's acting in a way that's not consistent with her character at all and it's kind of it's kind of funny like even though there's like obviously it's kind of luck that he got out and she didn't like it was just by virtue of that situation 
but it, it kind of feels like he got a free pass in a way, even because he's a man and because of her position and the kind of society that she lived in, she was forced to become this compromised character in order to survive. And he didn't really have to do that. He got to, he got to kind of do the hero thing and bounce from um, job to job. I might be reading too much into it, but the point of the whole film is that we kind of see where he develops this cynicism because he's, he's been betrayed by Woody Harrelson. He's sort of been betrayed by Amelia Clark. Not betrayed, but like he, you know, he comes to a realization about her. Yeah, that that she wasn't the I don't know the damsel of distress that he wanted her to be. But they kind of underplay that because in the next scene we get like a jolly thing of him winning back the Millennium Falcon or winning Millennium Falcon from Lando, and he doesn't seem like scarred by his experience. Well, that that also demonstrates that he's a little more uh, he's a little more uh, morally ambiguous too, right? Because yeah, like he's learnt he's learnt the cynicism and it's working for him because now he can realize that Lando was always cheating and he anticipates that and is able to win the ship for that so it shows that the cynicism that he's earned over the course of this story is paying off and that's that kind of makes sense to his character by the time we meet him in A New Hope why he's initially reluctant to be heroic I guess so it actually kind of fits really well as a prelude to A New Hope yeah it's a good it's a it's much better than uh, Rogue One which does absolutely nothing for that no (laughs) I I don't we should not talk about Rogue One but like what a, what a just pointless idea for a movie <laughs> like first of all anyone who says it's a plot hole that it was so easy they there was like a weakness to the Death Star is so stupid like it's yeah like who cares well of course they're a rebellion they fe- they, they've got the plans and they found a way of killing it who cares what the details are isn't it isn't it better that the that the people who made the Death Star are, are like fallible as opposed to the solution that they give you which is that the, the father of like some stupid <laughs> rebel fighter intentionally made this like obscure way to destroy it I'm just like fuck <laughs> me like come on are you saying that if he wasn't there, that would have been un- un- indestructible? It's so dumb. Like, who cares? The details don't matter. The point of the, the story is they have, like, fought and gone through a lot of people's lives to obtain these plans. They have analyzed the plans and found a way to blow up the Death Star based on those plans. That's all you need to know. It doesn't really matter, like, exactly how he does it. And and the only way it happened was because the pilot could use the Force. Like, have they forgotten that? Like, that's the only way it worked. It would have failed if it didn't have someone who could use the force. Which obviously he didn't like, you know, predict in the first place. So anyway, so Rogue One, Rogue One's bad. Solo's not bad. <laughs> Solo's kind of enjoyable. So it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I forgot to say that the most uh, notable thing about this film is the fact that it's a Willow reunion. If indeed uh, Howard was on the set that day, but I'm assuming he was because the final scene. But yeah, I enjoyed the fact that Warwick Davis uh, got to be. <laughs> did in. you did you hear that? There's a that Ron Howard was talking about maybe making a uh, Willow sequel. Really? Yeah. Did you miss this? I would love a whole Willow trilogy. <laughs> you and you alone. I'm so scared to watch Willow again because I've never seen it again since I was a kid, and I know it won't hold up as well as I enjoyed it. Like I, I loved that film so much when I was a kid. <laughs> and I've never seen it. We should do a Willow episode just to challenge your. Uh... We could do a, we could do like the periphery Star Wars kind of stuff. The Lucas, the stuff that Lucas did that's not uh, was it Star Wars? Well, even like the Battle of Endor and uh, stuff like that, which I also loved as a kid. <laughs> that's so funny. The Ewoks are great, so they are. I, I'm still annoyed when anyone says anything disparaging about the uh, Return of the Jedi. Yeah, it's a great film. It's probably my favorite of the original trilogy. It's not my favorite original trilogy, but I think it's a great ending film. 
Yeah, I totally get it. I, I, I genuinely don't understand the, the dislike for it. If you had to end the trilogy in terms of its chronology, which it was for a time until Disney made these films, it's a good ending point. Yeah, I agree. But apparently, I mean, apparently it never was intended to be necessary, right? Because he always said that he had, like, a sequel trilogy. He's, he said, like, he said, like, 70 million things about his plans for Star Wars that are kind yeah. of contradicted. But people people have apparently read the, the at least this treatment. He did, yeah, he the, did write treatments for another trilogy. Um, and I, th- I think he was a little on and off about whether he would or wouldn't do it at certain points. But, yeah. I, w- I really hope that when he dies, those, those get released. I love that he said. Do you remember when he was like, "I'm going to make, uh, make experimental films," but he has done nothing. I know he's. I mean, that was when he sold sold Lucasfilm to Disney, which was how many years ago now? Like six years ago? I don't know. Five. Five years ago. Know. Yeah, it was when I was graduating high school. It was a while ago. And I think he said he said that sentiment even before then at certain points that he wants to to go back to it, like when he's being fed up with the Star Wars franchise and stuff. And I really want him to do that, but. <laughs> so it's a deranged he makes. Um, like, have you seen? Uh, I think someone put it on YouTube at some point. The the short film that he later adapted into THX one one three eight, his first proper film. No, I haven't. But that's that's quite interesting. It's very it, like it owes a debt to to a lot of the experimental stuff that was happening at the time. But I kind of enjoyed that, even his student film of it. It's it's weird that he definitely started as like an experimental filmmaker and then. <laughs> Like not narrative even like he was like he like worked on documentaries and stuff. Like he he was he shot part of uh the Rolling Stones documentary. Oh, did he? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he he made a bunch of experimental short stuff. And it's so bizarre that he went out to make Star Wars. It's pretty far from experimental, I'd say. There were these hugely detailed production histories of the uh, each of the original trilogy films that were released. They're the well known ones. I can't quite remember the author's name off the top of my head. It starts with R. But it's fascinating, like especially the New Hope one. I think I finished reading it, but what I've read is so interesting. All the different permutations it went through, all his absolutely insane treatments of the film before it became what we know. Apparently they adapted one of those early scripts to a comic book. Yeah, I I heard that. And they're like nuts. They're like, I can't see that working at all. That's just like stupid. But it's also interesting that it did have more of a uh, experimental or revolutionary flavor than the, the ultimate film because he wanted at one point to have the cast all African American. Really, I didn't know that. It always annoys me when you read these things and you're like, "Yeah, but you didn't actually do that, so who the fuck cares that you thought about it?" Like, "Oh, but I decided." Not. And said so he made movies that are definitely not racist in any regard whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and uh, 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 for uh, quite a period, uh, Luke Skywalker was a woman. Really, which would have been. A better option, I think, and uh, obviously we know that everyone can. But now was... they've done that to a certain extent. Yeah, everyone can. Every they wanted to be. Um... <laughs> to Shira Mifune. To Shira Mifune. But it's you know it's funny how they people. They also wanted it for Darth Vader. But it's funny how people are saying like all these like alt right people are saying they're they're you know SJWs are ruining the Star Wars franchise with all this quote unquote work stuff. But George Lucas would have done that like but for the grace of God I guess. And then obviously I don't think they probably would have been. I mean, I mean, and, you know, certain of these experimental bits like were designed never to happen because they were experimental stuff, and like the scale that Star Wars is working on, like, you can't. You put in a bunch of crazy nonsense, but like not that, not progressive crazy nonsense. Uh, I think it, I guess it was toned down in the final thing, but it's still there. There was also the Vietnam War analogy, which was intentional uh, on his but part. I think, I think it actually comes through best in uh, Return of the Jedi, which is problematic, but definitely like you can see like you know it's like. 
yeah, the good Cuban people like um, teaching the the the, the local um, fighters how to fight back against like a huge, you know, imperial power, which is you know analogous to America. <laughs> And then, like, I mean, and obviously the prequels are, like, a, trying to make an analogy for, like, the rise of fascism. And it was funny, like, at a point before he went with Star Wars, um, there was a time in which he was flirting with the idea of making Apocalypse Now. He's, he's like, great friends with uh, Francis Ford Coppola. So, so does this enjoying Star Wars, which he did, put any faith in the next couple Star Wars movies? Has your, have you, have your, has your exhaustion been quelled? So I like The Force Awakens more than uh, The Last Jedi. Yes, which is a pretty rare opinion, I think. So I'm kind of happy that J.J. Abrams is doing the final part. There's like a lot of reservations I have with J.J. Abrams' work, but there are some things he does really well, especially working and casting actors. Uh, I think he did a great job with with the new cast of uh, Star Wars. And uh, he also has a certain uh, flair for action scenes. And they have a kind of visceral tactile flavor his, his, his action scenes are very easy to follow that's how i describe that which is not which is not a which is not like that sounds like sort of like damn with faint praise that's like a really difficult thing i think to do especially with digital effects well it's a difficult thing to do now because people have adopted a, a certain lazy style of incoherence essentially yeah just cutting to nonsense you kind of get the best and worst of abrams in an abrams film like I really enjoyed the first Star Trek remake up to a point, but then it has like kind of a bad third act and all that sort of stuff. But it, it had a great like, here's our new cast energy about it. I really didn't like the uh, second one at all. Though, yeah, the second one's terrible, which is pretty much all the worst of Abrams. <laughs> the best part of that movie is that they uh, they cure death at the end. It's like not a big thing. Like It's like they bring Kirk back from the dead. And they're just like, okay, we did that. Whatever. <laughs> At least in uh in uh the search for Spock, it's just like this bizarre like you know planet versus like yeah, I just did it. Um, can I go to the bathroom, please? I'm gonna go to the bathroom. Fine, go ahead. Come on, hurry up. All right, all right, I'm going.
All right, back. Oh my lord, Jesus Christ.